You guys want to be in a selfie with me? Nice. There you are. We're talking about selfishness today. And this week I learned about a Wikipedia page. Kind of sad, but also fascinating. It is a Wikipedia page documenting all of the injuries and deaths that have occurred because of selfie sticks. Commentary on just how important it is for us to get pictures of ourselves. There was an article in the New York Times Magazine called, I'm okay, you're selfish. And in that it said that 17% of people think that they think about themselves too much, but we think 60% of others think about themselves too much. So kind of an interesting uh, thing on selfishness. I think when we talk about selfishness in the context of church, there are kind of two possible poles and extremes. One is just this idea, yes, selfishness, that's just when your life is consumed with you, it's all about you, you're constantly taking selfies. That's one side. The other, though, is to adopt a sort of pseudo-selfishness that in the name of empathy and a misunderstanding of Christian love looks like this. People getting miserable with other people because they think that's what self-sacrifice looks like. Author and psychologist Henry Cloud says this about relationships. Good relationships balance togetherness and separateness, love and individuality, both smothering and detachment kill relationships. On one end, we can be so consumed with ourselves that we're detached from caring enough about others, but we also can err on the side of smothering, entering somebody else's misery so much, becoming miserable with them. To be selfish in either of these ways is to evade personal responsibility, either thinking of yourself or ignoring yourself in a sort of pseudo-selfish facade, a selfless, thinking it's a you know, selflessness. The real goal in our relationships is love. God is love. God invites us to live in love, to be filled up with love, his love, and then extend that love to others. So there's a selfishness that is overt and obvious, and then there is a selfishness that sounds like this. A mother can only be as happy as her least happy child. Have you heard that? That is a selfish way to live because you have actually evaded personal responsibility by concluding that your happiness is dependent on your child's mood. That's a terrible way to live. And it sounds tender. It sounds selfless. But it actually is not love. And although it might masquerade as selfless to say that, it's actually another way of not taking responsibility for your life. So in either form, the selfish person is kind of like a reckless driver on a collision course. And we know it just takes one reckless driver to cause a wreck. It just takes one selfish person to kill a relationship. Often, though, we have two selfish people on a collision course in relationships, causing a whole lot of crashes, totaling people's lives and souls. So in this series, uh, we're calling it Standing on Shaky Ground, Five Ways to Kill a Relationship. And basically what we're doing is we're looking at five core sins that the Bible talks about when it talks about relationships. We've said in this series, there's nothing like relationships. There's nothing that matters like relationships. Like for better or for worse, relationships are a big deal in our lives. You think about like, your most joy-filled moments in life, they're often relational. And then on the flip side, your most pain-filled moments in life are often relational. There's like nothing in the world that matters like relationships. You can eat meals with gourmet food on fine china, and it doesn't matter if your relationships are selfish. You could live in a beautiful, very expensive house, but if you live there in isolation 
and coldness and withdrawal and resentments and grudges, and some of you are, it is just a nicely decorated tomb. There is nothing like relationships in life. So today we're talking about selfishness and its impact on our relationship. And to do that, we're going to look at three things. Narcissism, Hosea, and parenting. The classic picture of selfishness is that picture of the Greek myth of Narcissus. Narcissus was a, a hunter who was very beautiful, but no one was worthy of his love. And all these different suitors came, but none of them were good enough. And then in the myth, Narcissus finds a pond, and he sees his reflection in the pond, and he actually dies because he will not leave his reflection. He dies, he perishes by that pool in his own image uh, reflected in its surface. Now, Narcissus may be a myth, but narcissism is a reality. And selfishness and narcissism is the sea we swim in. It is the spirit of our age. And it runs much deeper than just that superficial material greediness. Of course, a shopaholic may be selfish, a selfish teenager may be selfish. Those are obvious examples. But so also is the academic thinker who feels that his analysis is flawless and everyone must agree with him. That is a version of selfishness. So is the college student who spends four years in a close-knit community trying to find themselves. And probably most pervasive in our lives is many of us who consistently are just worn out by the pressures and the anxieties and the sheer pace of our lives. And we simply feel like we have to guard what little time and money and energy we have. Because if we give any more out, there, there just will not be enough left to function. We often feel like we're running on empty. So to go the extra mile for somebody who may need it, even someone we love, it was like that would break me. And that is actually the worst kind of selfishness because it's a justified selfishness. True narcissism. I would say for me, nothing reveals my, my own selfishness like having kids. It is pretty common for parents to start out with these parenting dreams about how we're just going to love our kids and we're just going to fill them up and they're going to be so full and somehow we're going to protect them from anything different, difficult or hard. And every parent everywhere reaches those moments where their plan doesn't work out the way that they thought. And it's easy in those moments, relationally, when we're disappointed, disappointed with ourselves, disappointed with each other, disappointed with society or schools or kids or whatever it would be, at that juncture, our, our love is tested. And we can get selfish in different ways. One version is like giving up on the kids. Another is obsessing over trying to fix their lives. And the Bible is the story of a God who is the perfect parent, heavenly father. And he has profound reasons to be disappointed with his children, with the world, and yet he responds in a way that is beyond comprehension. And if we will let it, it will transform the way we love one another. So here are some words out of the Bible. This is in a book by the prophet Hosea. Uh, really, God is talking, though, in this passage of his relationship with human beings, with the human race, his people. And God uses this image of a parent and child. So listen to what God says. God says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Every parent knows that feeling. And out of Egypt, 
I called my son. Remember, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. God led them out. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me, God said. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. You know, parents sometimes have that, like in terms of endearment for their children, little pet names. Ephraim is like a, it's like a, um, it's like a nickname. It's like a term of endearment for their children. Ephraim is one of those for God's children, for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them? My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. This passage is an extraordinary insight into the heart of God towards you and I. God is saying, when I called my little child Israel, they were nothing special. They were a bunch of ragged slaves, but I just loved them. And that is God's heart towards you. I taught them how to walk. I took their hand I did what a parent does. I bent down to feed them. God says, but they didn't know. How could they not know? How did they not know that that, that that was me? But they did not know that that was me. It's almost like God is saying through the, the words of Scripture to you and I, how did you not know? Like every morning when, when you wake up and the sun has risen again and you got some sleep and there's anyone in your life to love if if you have food to eat if you if you are breathing again how, how did you not know that 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 was me that that all of this is gift in this passage god is saying but my children didn't realize it was me and so what they did is they ran after these other gods some called baal some called success some called selfishness some called sex, money, power. They ran after these different gods. God's heart is like in lament of a parent who loves so much, but it's not going the way he'd hoped. You know, I thought our relationship was going to look so different. Like, I thought these kids were going to get straight A's. I thought they were going to be on the varsity team. I thought they were going to get into Harvard. I thought they were going to, I thought I'd have all these bumper stickers on the back of my car. And it is not working out that way. It doesn't look like that at all. And God is just pouring out this, it, it's the disappointment of a heartbroken parent. And in this passage, God goes on, and there's this turning point. It's kind of the hinge of the passage when God says this, but how can I give up on you, Ephraim? Every parent's heart knows this. How can I turn you loose, Israel? How can I leave you to be ruined? I can't bear to even think such thoughts. This is God talking. My insides churn in protest. So I'm not going to act on my anger. I'm not going to destroy Ephraim because I am God and not a human. I'm the Holy One. And I'm here in your very midst the people will end up following God. This is an amazing passage into the heart of God. We see in, this, in these words, we see this struggle, but it is not between God and some other force. It is not even between God and his children. The struggle is within God's own heart. My insides churn within me. How can I give up on you, Ephraim? It's like God knows the pain of rejection and disappointment. See, in our lives, in our relationships, the way things usually work is like, you hurt me, I hurt you. God says, this I cannot do because I'm God, because I'm the Holy One of Israel. And it's so interesting, the word holy, this little word holy, so often very misunderstood. 
we often think of it like as a churchy word, obscure word, misunderstood. Sometimes we think of it as an annoying word, like holier than thou. A lot of misunderstanding around this word, holy. Sometimes we think of holy as like, must mean God. If God's holy, God must be severe and strict and aloof, and that must get in the way of God's love. But actually, in this passage, it says, holiness is not an obstacle to my love. It's actually the foundation of my love. It's because I'm holy. So in this world, the way it works is like, you please me, I will please you, then I'll love you, you make me feel good about who I am, then I'm going to give you good vibes, good energy, but you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. That's how it works in this world often. It's precisely the fact that God is holy, that his goodness is unstoppable. It's his holiness that does not allow him to behave that way. He says, I can't stop loving my children because I promised. Love is not a feeling. Love is not a warm glow when you do things that make me feel good about myself. Love is a promise. And the promise is this. I will will your good. I will work for your good. I will devote myself to your good no matter how you treat me. So God says, for I am God and not a man, the holy one among you. See, love is a promise. God made a promise. And we're following in this promise. We're living in his promise. And then we're turning around and we're promising to love one another. And yet none of us can, can keep that promise on our own. You know, sometimes I will read a book to my kids about a promise between um, the love of a mother and child. Uh, maybe you've heard of it before. It's called Love You Forever. It has sold 30 million copies. And um, it's a little bit hokey. It's actually a little bit creepy. But uh, hang with me, because there's a story behind the story, and so I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, the whole thing. Um, but I, I do want to summarize it for you and then tell you kind of the story behind the story. Uh, the story starts like this. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And the baby grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew. So he's like two in this picture, and he flushes her watch down the toilet, <laughs> and she wants to take him to the zoo. But when he goes to sleep at night, she crawls up in his room, and if he's really asleep, she picks him up and holds him, and she rocks him back and forth, and she's saying, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. And then he grows, and now he's like a, you know, grade school kid, and he says bad words around grandma, and he never wants to take a bath, and uh, sometimes she feels like she is living in the zoo, but at night, she crawls up in his bed, and if he's really asleep, she sings him that little song. And then he's a little bit older, and now it's getting really crazy. And he's got a bunch of strange friends and strange clothes, and he's listening to strange music. But at night, when that teenager is asleep, she opens his room, crawls across his floor. If he's really asleep, she sings this song. Okay, then that teenager grows, and he, uh, he moves out of the house. Uh, and... Mom, on dark nights, drives across town. <laughs> Mom's going a little overboard now. <laughs> Getting a little creepy. And when the lights are out, <laughs> she picks up her grown son and she sings her little song. <laughs> and then that mother, she got older. And she got older and older and older, and one day she called her son. And she says, I'm actually very sick. And she tries to sing him the song over the phone. 
but she can't sing the whole thing because she's so weak and she's so sick. And so he drives over to her house. And the son went to his mother. He picked her up and rocked her back and forth and back and forth. And he sang this song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy, you'll be. And when the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. And then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And it's the story that generations will come and generations will go and parents continue to sing this song. You know, the guy who wrote this book is an author named Robert Munch. And his life is not a hallmark card kind of life. He was diagnosed quite young with bipolar disorder. And he writes about how when he was in the fifth grade, he can remember in the fifth grade being depressed, like, I don't want to live anymore, kind of depressed, in the fifth grade. And then he was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. This is the author of this story. And some of you know the agony of that. And then maybe partly to medicate himself, he started drinking and he became an alcoholic, and then he went to AA. And when he was a young man, he actually studied for seven years to become a Jesuit priest. But he found himself, given all that he had experienced in life, just filled with doubt and darkness. And he ended up not doing that. And, and then he got married, and his wife became pregnant. And they gave birth to a baby, but it was stillborn. And then she got pregnant again, and they gave birth again a second time, a stillborn baby. And then she didn't get pregnant anymore. And he never got to hold those little babies. He never got to be their dad. And he's a really good writer of children's books. And this little song came into his head, I'll Love You Forever. And that's where the song came from for those two little children that he would never get to raise. This thought came to him, I could write a story that's better than life. And in the story, love would be stronger than death. And so he did. And it's a funny thing for parents. I think when you're a parent, you get this idea, like, it's just in you, like, if you will just love your kids enough, like, you will just tell them enough, you, you'll somehow, like, fill up their little tanks. You just have this thought, like, if I just fill up their little tanks enough with enough love, like, then they'll never be anxious. They'll never be afraid. I'm never going to want to sell them to the zoo. <laughs> you know, we think, like, they're never going to have bad dreams. They're just going to grow strong and confident and successful and make great choices and great, lead great lives and raise great families. And then at some point, for every parent, you can't. And you, kind of like the dad in the book, you come to the top of the stairs, and there's some kind of loss of the dream. There's some kind of disappointment. Things have not gone as you have planned. And what do you do? when you're at the top of those stairs and your love is not enough anymore. Maybe you know you failed. What do you do when you come to the top of those stairs? You guys, that is why we are here. A bunch of broken-hearted, disappointed people 
bringing our disappointed, broken hearts to the disappointed, broken heart of God who says, I know, I, I know. And I'll love you forever. And I'm going to write a story where love is stronger than death. And he does. And this is where selfishness comes to die. You know, we don't come into church like we've got it all together. We don't come to God by having our act together. We come to God by not doing it right, messing up, and falling over and over and over again on his mercy and on his grace. This is where selfishness comes to die. Not because we're lost in filling, you know, filling ourselves up with another person's misery. We're filled up with the sacrificial, holy love of God. Selfishness dies when we're filled up with that love. There's that old saying that says the way a mom's heart works is like, a mother is only as happy as her least happy child. Have you heard that before? It sounds tender. It sounds selfless. But I just want to say that's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard. God does not run the universe that way. And thank God he doesn't. God does not say, well, as long as there's one human being running around on the wrong path, one prodigal son or one prodigal daughter, making stupid choices, living in misery, I'll just get down there and be miserable with them. God doesn't say that. Thank God he doesn't say that. Who wants to live in a universe with a miserable God? So don't wait, don't base your well-being and the well-being of your heart on the outcome of somebody else's life, not even somebody you love, not even your child. You know, adopting Lila, our second, uh, she, man, that journey has just been so incredible. And if you've been around, you've heard me talk about it before. I, I could not love that little girl anymore. I mean, my love for her is so fierce. Um, part of the journey in adoption, especially early on when she first came home, um, was that when we matched with her, she moved into a home, a foster home in Shanghai with this lovely family. Um, and the mom of that family, her name is Hulu. Not Netflix, Hulu. And Lila lived with Hulu and her family, um, and then until she came home to us. And uh, one of the difficult journeys in my heart in, in the adoption process was that kind of in my worst moments of shame, I would pray something like this, like, God, you, you didn't make me Chinese. And, and Lila, Lila needed a Chinese mom, and why didn't, she probably would have been better with Hulu. Hulu probably could have loved her better because Hulu's Chinese, and that was my shame storyline. That was my storm of shame storyline. And these kind of shame stories come up in us, and there's a lot of sympathy often for them. But here's what I want to say. Staying in that shame storyline is selfishness. Because I cannot love well I cannot will the good for you when I'm rehearsing lies. See, we live in a world where we get a lot of sympathy for our shame stories. Sometimes we're looking for healing in our shame, and, and sometimes that's appropriate. But you know what's often needed? We're looking for healing. What's needed is confession, because when I am focusing on a lie, like Lila would be better with a Chinese mom. A Chinese mom could have loved her better. When I am focusing on a lie, I am not living in the truth, and I am not able to love well when I'm rehearsing that lie. So what do I have to do? I have to name it. I have to confess it. I have to turn from it in repentance, and I have to listen to the voice of truth to the voice of God who says, but I didn't want Lila to be her mom. I chose you to be her mom. I gave you what this little girl needs, and you are this child's mom because I want you to be this child's mom. So move on and get loving her. 
And I would just say to you, I don't know what your possible shame story might be and how it may be keeping you from love and from loving well. But that is worth naming, confessing, turning from, repenting of, and embracing and living and walking in the truth. Because the truth is this, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That kingdom is not in trouble, and neither am I. That is the truth of where you and I live. But what often happens is we're rehearsing some shame storyline. It's different for everybody. And we're asking for healing of these shame stories, but really what is needed is confession. I've been, I've been living in a lie. It's been keeping me from love. I've been rehearsing a story, and it is not true. It is not real. It is not reality. Reality is I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And so I repent of that lie. And we sing about it, right? Like, there's no lie that God isn't going to kick down in our lives. Coming after your heart. Coming after you. So I would just say, name it, confess it, repent of it. You are who you are. You are where you are because God made you. God loves you. God knows you. God's Holy Spirit equips you. God is going to use you. And your well-being and your connection to God in your life does not rest on the outcome of somebody else's life, not even the life of your child. So let's just boil it down like this. Um, let me ask, if I have a person in my life that's miserable, will it help if I get miserable with them? No, that is not what selfless love looks like. Would you say this sentence with me? Selfless love does not mean putting my personal well-being in the hands of the least emotionally healthy person in my life. That includes your relatives. And I don't mean to be callous. And empathy is a very good thing. But here is a little secret. Generally speaking, you will be a much better parent, coworker, friend, boss, if you live in the joy of the Lord. If you are basically happy in your life with God, you actually have more to give that way. Just crawling into the miserable space because somebody you love is in the miserable space, it will not be a gift, not even to them. See, when somebody in your life gets miserable, when they start to spiral, it is very hard not to get sucked into the drama, right? It's very hard to not get sucked into that spiral with them. And a major theme of this entire series has been boundaries in relationships. We're giving away the book named Boundaries through this series by Henry Cloud. Basically, what we tend to do in our relationships in a myriad of ways is that we don't take responsibility for the one person we are responsible for. Who's that? Ourselves. We don't focus on the only kind of control the Bible ever mentions, which is self-control, but instead we put a ton of energy into other control, attempting to control everybody else around us. If you just want like a recipe for misery, put your attention on things you cannot control, including other people. If you want to foster some happiness in your life. Focus on what you do have some semblance of control. The only control the Bible talks about is self-control. And this is how we learn to love one another. There's a really interesting statement in the Bible. A lot of you know, you know, King David, his life is kind of a wreck. His family's a wreck. He's not the best father, not the best husband. Um, and at one point... Everybody's deserted him. And there's this great statement where it just says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Basically, that is the heart of this entire series. 
what I long for for you and for me is that you and I would foster such a life in God. We would foster such a life of love and joy and peace and patience in God that no matter what drama comes our way, no matter what chaos comes our way, we are able to love while remaining anchored. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And that is the heart of it. You want to kill a relationship? Be selfish, overtly or or covertly. You want to build a relationship? Live in God. Find your anchor in God. Because he is always with you, and he is more than able to equip you to love even the most difficult people in your life. So as we come to the table now, let us pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal in the upper room with his friends. He took some bread during that meal and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And after that supper, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Would our communion servers come forward? That would be Bill and Dottie and Chichi and Lanita. Um, If you have not taken communion here at Platt Park Church before, know that the table is open to all as a reflection of your faith in Jesus, but you're also equally welcome to stay where you are and contemplate the message you just heard and Um, You may also want to light a candle at any one of our candle stations around the room and say a prayer for a loved one or for the world. Um, I will be in this corner back here. If you would like to receive personal prayer this morning, I would be delighted to pray with you for big things or small things. So the table is set. Come forward as you're ready. Jesus, I surrender all to him I freely give. And I will 
trust him in his presence daily live I surrender ourselves so often, it's, um, sometimes it's helpful to see ourselves in the perspective of how great, how big his, he, he is, and his affection for us. As we put ourselves in that place, our thoughts stray from ourselves and onto the greatness of him and the love that he puts in us. Ocean, 
bottomless sea. You are an endless ocean, bottomless sea. You are an endless ocean, bottomless sea. You are an endless ocean. those angels they are swimming in this ocean and they still can find no shore day and night night and day they keep seeing new sights of your You are an endless ocean, bottomless sea. You are an endless ocean, bottomless sea. You are an endless ocean. You are an endless ocean, your bottomless sea. Oh, 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 Each breath you breathe, may you be drawn deeper and deeper into that endless ocean. Receive now this benediction, this blessing as we go forth, and you're welcome to say it along with me if you like. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you. 
wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go in grace and peace to love and serve the Lord. And please take a minute to greet someone before leaving. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you.